Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. It's nice to have our uh, early childhood group uh, sharing in the uh, Christmas story with us like that. A little different this year, a little um, presentation. My, uh, that was my great niece who wants to be a girl angel, and, uh, but it's kind of a long story. So <laughs> I'm assuming because her father teaches uh, English at a local university, she's working on a novel, I imagine, right? That we'll be able to read sometime. Uh, Kevin wanted me to mention that there is no uh, junior high uh, snow tubing uh, social this week because there's no snow. So um, we're on a tube on the rocks up there. So that will not take place and maybe it'll be rescheduled later. And also, again, remember, no service tonight or next Sunday night, but we invite you to come on Wednesday night at 5 o'clock for the candlelight Christmas Eve service. It's a one-hour service, and we hope you can come and join us for that. And the following Wednesday... Um, many of our adult uh, Sunday school groups are having uh, class socials in homes uh, or church, and so I'd like you to, uh, maybe if you can, share in that. And if you'd like information about that, uh, just look at the bulletin or give me a call, and then we'll be glad to uh, make sure and give that information to you. Let's have a word of prayer together. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, we do pray that our hearts would be open to your word, and that we would listen to your word and hear your word in this very familiar Christmas story but that uh, once again, uh, we would learn something fresh and new as we uh, walk with you this week. And we pray this in Christ our Savior's name, whom we've come to worship and adore today. Amen. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He was there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Very, very uh, well-known passage of Scripture. You know, the hymn that we sing, uh, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy darkness shineth the everlasting light the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. As we consider the Christmas story once again, and I ask the question, why Bethlehem? Why a manger? This uh, epical event, the birth of the Savior, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, this miraculous virgin birth, this astounding miracle beyond our comprehension. Why Bethlehem and why a manger? You know, uh, earlier in the children's presentation, one of the children mentioned that uh, Jesus, where did they place him? In a barn. 
And that actually is probably closer to the truth in terms of our understanding because the word manger to us sort of conjures up almost sometimes culturally kind of a birthing place for a baby because that's where Jesus was placed. And it's a very kind of cozy, warm uh, thought, you know. But in reality, uh, it, was a, it was what we might consider a barn. Uh, one of my uh, translations in my Bible has a footnote for the word manger, and the original language means a feeding trough. That's what it was. It was a feeding trough for animals. Now we just sung, uh, why lies he here in mean estate? Where the animals feed, the oxen and the donkeys. Uh, the other day we took our uh, grandchildren up in the Ballard area to where their, one of the businesses has, uh, uh, has a camel, has a camel and reindeer. And uh, we got to see the camel. Um, and uh, I always, I remember, I like camels because my dad used to, when he lived in Islander Roads and went to the coast of Turkey, they knew about camels and he knew how to transfix the camels at the zoo uh, when he saw them. I remember the camels going like this. Uh, it was a cigarette smoke. <laughs> he knew how to do that. Uh, he knew how to blow the smoke into their nostrils and make them kind of lift their head. There could have been a camel there. This could have been a camel's feeding trough where the king of the universe, the creator of the world, Jesus Christ, was placed. Why Bethlehem? And why a manger? As Luke I read from Luke as he tells the story, and Matthew tells it from a little different perspective, of course, but in uh, Matthew chapter 2, the story of the Magi, or the wise men from the east, and when they came after Jesus was born, verse 1, in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is he? There's a whole other study, why, why were they looking, who were they? Uh, we'll handle that maybe another time. They saw a star in the east. And the King Herod was quite upset about this because he was the king of the Jews. See, King Herod called himself the king of the Jews. And so King Herod, in verse 4, calls together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, and he asks them, where is the Christ? Where is the Messiah to be born? And they responded, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written from Micah. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Why Bethlehem? Uh, the word Bethlehem is from the Hebrew. Baith or Beth in the Hebrew it's Baith. It means house. And lechem, in this case, means bread. And so it's either the house of bread or the baker's house is what the city, the name means, Bethlehem. Uh, I prefer, I think, the house of bread. It was a village. We sang the song in the little village of Bethlehem. It's interesting. If you were to, if you were to take a poll today and just somewhere and just ask randomly 10 people, have you ever heard of Bethlehem? Especially this time of year, I, I'm going to pretty well bet that probably 10 out of 10 would say yes. Um, awareness of Bethlehem may rank right up there with all the major metropolitan cities in the world. But it's a little village. 
during the time of the first century and during the Old Testament era. It was a small town, barely a town, a village, an insignificant place. Not too far from Jerusalem. When you travel today, you don't travel too far from Jerusalem to get to Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? There's a little background to Bethlehem. Just we'll look at it real quickly here. If you go back to Genesis chapter 35, in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, first book in the Bible, we have the story of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their families. And we also have the, the story of the matriarchs. You know, these are very important in the Jewish story as well. Uh, Sarah, Rebekah, and Rachel. And even though Rachel is not the mother of all the tribes of Israel, she is considered the matriarch, the last of the matriarchs, because she was Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, hence the children of Israel. She was his first intended wife, and she's considered the matriarch. But as she was giving birth to Benjamin, Joseph's brother, she died. And in verse 18, it says that she breathed her last, for she was dying. She named her son Ben-Ani, but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. And Israel, that is Jacob, moved on again. This insignificant village became the, the marked place where the last matriarch of Israel, Rachel, died on the, en the entrance to Bethlehem. And to the writing of this, this book uh, by Moses, it, that is there to this day, he says. There's a pillar there that marks, just before you get to Bethlehem, the tomb of Rachel. We go to the book of Ruth in our Old Testament, Joshua Judges, Ruth. And we go to the story of Ruth, and we have a story in four chapters. And, but you notice the setting of Ruth. In chapter 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name, Naomi. And we have the, the story of Naomi and Ruth. And in a nutshell, the, the, man, uh, the, 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 the men in the family die, and the mother, uh, Naomi, is left with these two daughter-in-laws who are Moabitess. They are not from Israel. And uh, she tells him, you go back to your people, I'm going back to my people, I'm going back to Bethlehem. And of course, Ruth, in that very famous uh, statement, you know, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people be my people. Your God, my God. She chooses to go back with Naomi to Bethlehem. But in Bethlehem, they are very poor people. There is no man in the family to provide a living. And in the culture of that day, that was very essential. And in fact, they were so poor, they were among those who were allowed to go and glean the corners of the fields. For in the Old Testament, the Jews were to leave the corners of their field. They were to leave the, the gleanings there for the poor people to come and, and to take the gleanings. And as the story uh, unfolds, her, her, her husband-to-be leaves special things for her, takes notice of her. And as the story 
as the story develops, you come to the end in the chapter 4 of Ruth. And in verse, in verse 11, as, as Boaz wants to marry her, but there's a legal is, issue with the next of kin and so on, but it finally it takes place. And it says, And all the elders, chapter 4 and verse 11, and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. In verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And she has a child. And we see in verse 16, that Naomi, her mother-in-law, took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son, a grandson, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And this took place in the village of Bethlehem, an insignificant town village outside of Jerusalem, becomes the family home of Jesse, of Obed, Jesse, and then of David. In the story of David, you just turn to the next book, 1 Samuel, and we go to chapter 15 of Samuel. And I want you to think of a sort of a theme here in, whoops, in 1 Samuel, and uh, chapter 16, and as King Saul has been anointed king of Israel, but has failed, and God is looking for a new king, and he says in verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, chapter 16, how long will you mourn for Saul? I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil. Samuel is the prophet. Be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be the king. And so Samuel, after inquiring of God, how can I do this? Saul's going to hear about it. He, he goes. And he goes to Bethlehem. And he goes there to offer a sacrifice. And he, and he finds Jesse. And he asks Jesse to bring, in verse 5, he says, I've come in peace. I've come to sacrifice. Consecrate yourselves. Come to sacrifice with me. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. And Jesse and his, and his strong good-looking young men, his sons, come with him to the sacrifice because one of them is the new king of Israel from Bethlehem. And as they came before him, verse 6, Samuel saw Eliab and he thought, aha, there he is. Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. He was a good-looking, strong, tall, looked like me. No, <laughs> with hair. No, <laughs> big guy. In fact, we see later on the story of David and Goliath. He is there. He is there. He's the oldest. He's in the army. He appears to be an officer, but he is not about to go out and fight Goliath. But Samuel looks at him and says, man, he's big. He looks good. He looks strong. That is the king. And of course, the Lord says to him, nope. Verse 7, Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so each of the sons comes before Samuel. And each one, God says, nope, 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 nope. And they've all passed before him. And at the end of verse 10, the Lord has not chosen me. And he said to, he said to Jesse, are these all your sons? God told me one of your sons would be the king. Oh, yeah, I forgot about David. How do you forget about a son? How do you forget that? 
I mean, David was so insignificant in terms of coming to the sacrifice, so unlikely, so, so humble and small in Jesse's eyes that he didn't even bother to invite him to the sacrifice, that, that the man of God said, bring all of your sons. Yeah, there's still, yeah, I have one, but he's out taking care of the sheep. And Samuel says, send for him. We will not even sit down until he gets here. And in verse 12, he had him come in. He looked ruddy. He was reddish color, kind of ruddy. That's the color of the earth. He was earthy looking. Fine appearance. Handsome features. And the Lord says, rise up. He's the one. The least likely that his father didn't even think enough of to invite to the party is the one who's anointed as king of Israel. You see the, the, the theme here? The theme here is the least likely place, a least likely spot on the road to this least likely place, the last matriarch is buried, a least likely poor woman from Moab who is out picking up leftovers in the field because she is so poor and they have no hope and no future in Israel is the one who becomes the grandmother, if you will, of the line of the kings of Israel. And the least likely son of Jesse, the shepherd boy, is called to be the king of Israel. But he's a man after God's own heart. Why Bethlehem? Why a manger? Why a feeding trough? Why a feeding trough? Why a place? Why not Jerusalem? Why not Jerusalem? Why not right outside the temple walls? Why not within earshot of the Holy of Holies? Why not Caesarea? the capital, the Roman capital of the province where Pilate lived and where the Roman governors stayed and lived and only came to Jerusalem when they had to. A beautiful seacoast town, a rich town, a wealthy town. Why not Caesarea? Why Bethlehem, the house of bread, a little village? Why to an insignificant young girl and her betrothed husband. In the tradition of Ruth and Naomi, in the tradition of poverty, so poor when they go to offer a sacrifice for Jesus, they bring the pigeons that the poor people bring because they couldn't afford a decent sacrifice. Why Bethlehem? Why a manger? And maybe we could even ask the question, why did the Lord Jesus come? You know, we asked our children, those working with Susie, they interviewed the children, and our children have been taught, and they understand, he came to save. He came to be our Savior. He came for us. That's what we teach our children. We teach them that the Bible is true. That, that this really is what God intended. And so why manger? Why Bethlehem? Why did Jesus even come? If you look in the gospel at Matthew 20, our Lord Jesus Christ has grown up. He is not far 
from the cross of Calvary. In fact, they're on their way to Jerusalem. And as they're on their way to Jerusalem, a couple of the disciples, their mother comes, and in verse 20, the, mon- the mother of Zebedee's son came to Jesus with her sons and kneading down asked a favor, what does you want? She said, grant me that one of these two sons may sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in the kingdom. Jesus doesn't scold her. He tells you you don't know what you're asking. But when this gets out to the other disciples, they're not too happy about this, that these guys are asking for a place of prominence in the kingdom, the coming kingdom. They believe Jesus is the king. They believe he is the Messiah. And they believe it's right around the corner. And so Jesus, verse 25, he calls them together and he says this. You know, listen, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you, dear disciples. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Why Bethlehem? Why the manger? Why Christmas? Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but he came for two reasons. He came to serve, and he came to give his life as a ransom for many. The simple answer, why Christmas? Jesus tells us right here. Jesus came for a purpose. And the purpose was to die on the cross at Calvary, to give his life a ransom for many. But in order for that to have any effect on our lives, in order for it to have an effect on my life so that I could be cleansed from my sins and I could be forgiven for my sins and I could have eternal life, the one to go to the cross at Calvary had to be a human like me. Because only a human can take my place and pay for my sins. It has to be a human. But only God is completely and intrinsically holy and pure. And only a holy and pure sacrifice can satisfy God's justice and judgment against sin. Therefore, the baby born in the manger of Bethlehem had to be 100% God and 100% human. To be 100% God means he could never sin. He must be perfect. But to be 100% human means he can identify completely with your humanity and with mine. And the reason for Christmas, Jesus tells us right there, the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. That's number one. The number one reason why we celebrate Christmas, the number one reason why this day is so important to us, whether it was December 25th, whether there have been other traditions that have come into it, it's what it means to us. And what it means to us, yes, we have chosen a day, the Christian calendar has chosen a day to set aside to remember the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, because he came for the reason to ransom us from Satan and from sin. The Jews knew well about this. They knew the story of Passover where the sacrificed lamb 
The blood was put there to cover the door so the firstborn son would not die. And therefore, each firstborn son was bought back and given to God as Jesus was when his mother and father brought him to the temple. He came to give a ransom. But you also notice that Jesus said, I specifically came to be a ransom. And I did not come so that I could be served. You serve kings. You serve them. You do what they tell you to do. You please them. That's why you're always happy. That's why when Nehemiah went before the king that day, and the, and the king said, Nehemiah, I noticed you're, you're downcast. You're not very happy. And Nehemiah quickly prayed to God because that could have cost him his life. You're never unhappy in the presence of a king. You're always happy because it's the king. They are to be served. But Jesus said, I'm not here to serve, to be served. I am here to serve. And if you want to be like me, he told his disciples, and if you want to be great, if you want to be first, then you must become the servant of all, and the last will be first. Why Bethlehem? Why a manger? Because it completely fits with God's way of doing things. He doesn't do things the way we would do them. He doesn't do things the way the world would do them. He specifically and he purposely does it differently. He specifically chose, way back in the Old Testament, a little village that was insignificant and always would be insignificant. He chose that place to bring the Messiah, the God-man. He specifically chose that this, there would be no place for this baby to be put into a bed, a decent bed upon birth. But instead, he was placed in the most, not humble, but humiliating. You know, one of our children say, were you born in a, no, I was born in a hospital. To be placed in a feeding trough with the oxen and the donkeys and maybe the camel nearby being interrupted from their meal. We assume fresh hay was put in there. But you know, when a baby comes, things can happen fast. But God did it on purpose. And Jesus grew up to a poor common family because this is how God does things. Now I want you to notice how this impacts you and impacts me. In fact, it just so happens that this passage was already read this morning. If you turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, Paul's epistle to the church at Philippi. It was read during our Advent candle lighting this morning. But in Philippians chapter 2, in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, speaking to Christians, speaking to people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, who have, re who have received and believed this story of the Incarnation, this unbelievable, miraculous story that that baby in the manger was fully God and fully man, that he went to the cross at Calvary and he died. He was God, but he died. But he rose from the dead, victorious over sin. And they embraced this. They accepted it. They believed it by faith, the simple message that we preach today of salvation 
that you can receive Christ's forgiveness for your sins by acknowledging and admitting your need for salvation and accepting that Christ was God. He died on the cross. He paid for your sins and you come by faith and you receive this message of hope and the message of the gospel. And he writes to these people just like us who believe this. And he says this in verse 5. Your attitude, Philippians, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, your attitude should be exactly the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But Paul tells me, Jim, if you're truly a Christian, then you should have this same attitude. You should have this same mind of Christ Jesus who chose to become a servant. Yes, he was the leader of all. He was the God of the universe. But he chose specifically to become a servant. He humbled himself and he gave himself for you, Jim. Put your name in there. He gave himself for you. And it's because of that, in the verses previous to this, in verse 2, Paul says, make my joy complete by being like-minded. How do you do this? How do you have the mind of Jesus Christ? He tells you right here. Be like-minded. Having the same love. Christians, being one in spirit and purpose. Doesn't mean we all have to think the same. We all have different opinions. We have different opinions on a lot of things, and we can disagree and, and do so in, in, in the right way. But we can also have unity of thinking that what God wants is what is important, that God's will is most important, that God's love. And he says this do nothing. Listen, put your name here Jim. Jim. Pastor Jim. Do nothing out of selfish nothing. No thing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why Bethlehem? Why a manger? Why the incarnation? He came to give his life a ransom for many. And he came to be the servant of all. And Paul specifically tells us here that we are to have this same attitude, this Christmas, this same mind, that in humility we are to consider others better than ourselves. That I'm to put your interests before my own. That I'm to look upon your interests before I put my own interests first. You know, this applies to where your relationships are. You know, if you, may be, you may be a person in authority. You may have a job where you have people under you that are responsible to you. But as a Christian, 
you can be a servant leader. Don't you like working for those kind of people? Don't you like working for people who understand that they can be in leadership, but they are there to make you better, to make the company better, to do good things, to lead and to serve? Listen, in your families, parents, in our families, who should be the number one servant in my family? Who should it be? Huh? You're looking at him. I am to be the number one servant in my family because that is my role as the spiritual head of my family. And parents, to find that balance where we have authority and responsibility and leadership, but we are servants. As members of a local church body, we are to be servants to one another. We are to serve those children that we saw on that screen. We are to think of them as more important than us and ourselves. We are to have the mind of Christ Jesus. This is why Bethlehem. This is why the manger. This is why it fits perfectly. And in closing, 1 Corinthians. This powerful passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul once again explains it so clearly that every one of us can relate to. Why a manger? And why Bethlehem? 1 Corinthians writes this early church at Corinth. It begins in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The very message of, the, the very message of our quote, religion as Christian, Christians and of Christianity, that our God would come and die on the cross to pay for our sins. Paul says it's foolishness to the world. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But in verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's, men's strength. Now look at verse 26. Brothers, and we can put sisters here, brothers, sisters, all of us, church, family of God, you, me, think of what you were when you were called. Look around you, Corinthians. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Look around, he says. Where are the wise? Where are the noble? Where are the famous? There are some. But look around, he says, that's not who you are. That's not who we are. We are just common, ordinary, average people. But God specifically, verse 27, chose the foolish things of the world. Yes, that's me. That's us. Chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things. Yes, that's me. A weak thing. That's us. To shame the strong. He chose the lowly things. That's me. And the despised things. That's me. And the things that are not. To nullify the things are. Why? Why a manger? Why Bethlehem? So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him. That you are in Christ Jesus. Who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness. Holiness and redemption. Therefore, why? Here's why. As it is written, 
Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I got good news for you, friends, this Christmas. Do you sometimes feel weak? Do you sometimes feel inadequate? Do you sometimes feel like if people really knew what you were like, they may not like you very well, or they may reject you? Do you sometimes feel like everybody else is probably so much better and so much more spiritual and so much smarter than you are? I got news for you. Every one of us feels that way. Because we are the foolish, simple, common, ordinary people of this world. And God has specifically called us and revealed himself to us and brought us to himself in faith in Christ Jesus so that the glory will go to him and not to us. And God has given us the privilege of being called by his name, Christ ones, Christians. And God has specifically given us the privilege of being the greatest servant in our family, in our workplace, in our neighborhood, with our friends, and in our church, to our children and to our grandchildren. God has given us the privilege of being a servant because of the manger and because of Bethlehem and because of a Savior who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for each of us. You have a great Christmas gift to give this Christmas. It's not going to come, as Kevin said, from any of those retailers that send you. You have a great Christmas gift to give this Christmas, and that is to become a servant and have the mind of Christ Jesus and to exhibit to others and be an example of what Christmas is really about. He came to give his life for us and to teach us to be humble and to be the servants of all. Let's close our service with our final song. And again, I invite you to join us on Christmas Eve for a candlelight service as we celebrate and light the final candle, the incarnation, this Advent. I'd be interested to know if the author of that song uh, wrote that as a statement or a question. Isn't he? If you're here today and you know Christ as your Savior, you know it as a statement. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he loving and gracious? It's possible there's somebody here today who you have to honestly say, I don't know Christ as Savior. I've not made that decision. I've heard about it. You maybe even heard it here. Maybe someone has told you. Maybe you just heard it for the first time this morning as I've shared with you that Christ died on the cross and paid for your sins. And you may have a question, isn't he or is he? And I would sure hate to have anybody leave this place today and at least not have heard how much God loves you and how much he desires that you would accept Christ as your Savior and how much he desires. The Bible tells us it's, the, it's God's desire that nobody is lost because you will be lost if you reject him, lost for eternity. His desire is for you to, in simple faith, say yes to God and to receive Christ 
as your Savior. You can do that as we close in prayer. You're not doing it for me or the church or anybody that brought you. It's between you and God. Heavenly Father, I do pray just a moment of quietness if there be a person here today who's never accepted Christ. I'm not talking about those who have, but if they've never accepted Christ as Savior, Lord, in this moment of quietness, would they, and would you, dear friend, just humbly say yes to God. I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. I have heard that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead and has offered me forgiveness for sins and payment for my sins. And I wish to receive in simple faith your grace and your forgiveness. Would you tell God that? And Father, for those of us who have accepted Christ as Savior, uh, we do leave with an affirmation and a statement today. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he gracious? Isn't it good to be forgiven? Isn't it good to know we are part of your family? And isn't it great to know we will be with you for eternity, to serve you and to worship and to share together with our Savior Jesus Christ, born in that feeding trough in Bethlehem to be our Lord. And in Christ our Savior's name, we have gathered today and we leave with joy in our hearts and all God's people can say it together. Amen. Amen.